Hi, this is Tim Rowan. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to clarify something we covered last week when we discussed the four gunshot wounds to Steve McNair's body. The autopsy report classified the shot to Steve's right temple as a contact wound, and the other three shots were described as distant shots, meaning they came from a distance greater than three feet. That's all correct. But after the episode aired, we realized that we'd overlooked the detail in the police findings. There's a separate firearms report that concluded that, based on an examination of McNair's shirt and undershirt, the two shots to Steve's chest likely came from a distance of two to four feet. It's still unclear, though, how far away the shot to Steve's left temple came from. All we know is, according to the autopsy report, it came from a distance of greater than three feet. We wanted to make that clarification, and we've since updated last week's episode to reflect this. And now, on to the episode. When someone of Mr. McNair's stature dies, it gets a lot of attention. And then there's a lot of people who want to create their own narrative. Some of the allegations are actually ludicrous. Okay, well, if this guy didn't do it, then maybe you believe this guy did it. Well, if this guy didn't do it, maybe you believe that his wife was somehow involved. But there was no evidence leading to Michelle McNair being involved in this case whatsoever. There is evidence that Steve was out there and he was playing with fire. There's no Absolutely. question about that. And and not, not just with Miss Kasimi. She's like, men are just sick and I hate men and da-da-da-da. You got to look at her mental stability at the time this occurred. She had a lot of problems. She told me, she said, you know, my dad killed my mom right in front of me. So to say now that she was perfectly fine, come on, that's not rational. In the end of the investigation, I am absolutely confident of a murder-suicide. The totality of everything we investigated, they, they came to that conclusion that she did it. Did it. This is Tim Rowan. Welcome to Fall of a Titan. Sometime around the spring of 2010, about a year after Steve McNair and Jenny Kazemi turned up dead, Vincent Hill, a former Nashville cop who was reinvestigating the deaths on his own, sent a letter to the Davidson County District Attorney's Office. Vincent wanted to reopen the McNair case. He said he had evidence he wanted to bring forth. Somewhat surprisingly, the DA's office agreed to hear him out. So Vincent went before a grand jury to present his findings. At the outset of that hearing, Vincent held up a picture of McNair standing in front of a barbecue grill with a huge smile on his face. Hill pointed to the photo and told the jurors, this case isn't about book sales, media coverage, or proving a point to his old employers, the Nashville PD. All accusations that have been thrown his way. No, they were gathered because of the man in the photo, period. Then Vincent held up a second picture, this one of Jenny, smiling and holding a puppy. Real heartwarming stuff. They were gathered because of her, too. Vincent had prepared and submitted to the court a nine-page, single-space letter, and here he summarized from it. He talked about Adrian Gilliam, the man who allegedly sold Jenny Kazemi the murder weapon, and how Gilliam allegedly lied about his alibi the night of the murder. He talked about Robert Gaddy, and all the people who claimed he'd stolen $13,000 from Steve, and how that was a motive worth exploring. And he talked about all the ways in which he thought the Nashville police had screwed up their investigation. He also gave the grand jury members a 50-some-page supplement report, that report included pages from the police file and emails Vincent had exchanged with his own sources, plus his own typed-out notes. I've seen the packet. It seems to have been thrown together a little haphazardly, but Vincent helps the reader by highlighting passages that he found particularly important. I broke it down like I was a defense attorney or a prosecutor. Like, here's why she didn't do it. Here's why this guy did it, right? So, man, I was probably in there well over an hour, and uh, I thought I had them going. According to Vincent, at the very end, one member of the grand jury even asked him, if things didn't happen the way the police said they did, 
then who do you think killed Steve McNair? I think the last question they asked were like, well, who should be charged for these murders? And I said, Adrian Gilliam. I said, because he's the one guy that made up this whole BS story about a gun sale, and he was not where he said he was. And I'll say this until the day I die. It was his gun all the way up till July 4th, 2009. There was no gun sale ever. And he's the one guy that wasn't where he said he was during the time of the murders. We can account for everyone else. We can account for Steve. We can account for Jenny. We can't account for Gillen. It's an idea Vincent covered in his first book about the Steve McNair case, Playbook to a Murder. There, he describes how he believes Gilliam carried out the double homicide, every step of it, straight from Vincent's imagination, in exquisite detail. He writes about how he thinks Gilliam probably went over to McNair's condo to see Jenny in the early hours of July 4th, and then turned hostile after she rejected his advances. Remember, Gilliam was trying to pursue a romantic relationship with Jenny. Once Steve arrived home after a night of drinking, Vincent imagines that he and Gilliam got into an argument that resulted in Gilliam shooting Steve twice in the chest with his Bryco Jennings 9mm handgun. Then Vincent envisions Gilliam placing the gun in Jenny's hands and firing another shot to Steve's left temple before turning the gun on Jenny and killing her too. Vincent has long held the opinion that Jenny was involved in some sort of struggle before she died. The autopsy report notes that she had a few faint bruises on her left forearm and that she had a small abrasion on her left leg. Lastly, Vincent writes, quote, On the way out of the condominium, Gilliam places one more shot to Steve's right temple and throws the gun to the floor at Steve's feet. To be crystal clear, this is 100% pure fiction. And to be honest, it's not any more plausible than what the police suggest happened. But this was how far Vincent Hill went. He dreamt up a scenario accusing someone of a double homicide without any evidence and then self-published it in a book. He needed more than that if he was going to convince the grand jury. The Nashville PD had a chance to present its case too. And in the end, the jury sided with the police. Vincent didn't have enough evidence, not enough physical proof. The case wouldn't be reopened. So my rebuttal was, Nashville police will not release the crime scene photos. How can I give you physical evidence if they have it locked down like this? I can't. So, and that should tell you something. Why are they holding on to this like this? But Vincent wasn't deterred. About five years later, in early 2015, after a new district attorney had come into office, Vincent arranged to meet with Norris Tarkington, one of the DA's investigators. Vincent knew Tarkington well. He too used to work for the Nashville Police Department. He was one of the lead detectives on the McNair case. And so Vincent knew his chances were slim, but he figured he'd give it a shot, see if he couldn't convince Tarkington to reopen his own case. He seemed attentive, but you know, as far as I know, he may have had the Charlie Brown voice going on in his head while I was talking. But again, to his credit, you know, he listened. He didn't just try to shut me down. You know, he could have easily just said, no, I'm not having a meeting with you. You know, part of me thinks it was more of he wanted to know exactly what I knew and how close I was than anything else. There was a part of him when I was watching where he kind of looked like, yeah, we kind of screwed this up, right? But then, you know, when I started asking about crime scene photos, he told me to divert to Charles Robinson, who's still under the police department. So I don't know if he was trying to wipe his hands clean of it or, or what he was trying to do. But, you know, when I started asking about the crime scene photos, he's like, well, you got to ask Charles Robinson about that. Again, word came back. The DA's office would not be reopening the case. Later, when I sat down with Charles Robinson and Pappas Stiglione, two other detectives who worked the McNair case back in 2009, I asked them, what do they think about Vincent trying to get this thing reopened? He was afforded the luxury of talking to a DA investigator uh, in the DA's office. 
And, and they made it clear, unless you have new evidence, because they, they knew that he had already been heard before with the last DA, unless he had new evidence, that's the only thing they wanted to hear about. He could not bring in the new evidence. But they sat down and talked to him to see what evidence he had, and he had no new evidence. It was just all speculation. Well, he, not that he didn't have any new evidence. He didn't have any evidence. Right. That's very important. He had speculation right. and theory. That's right. what he was going with. Right. To this day, I think he's still trying to push whatever agenda he's got. I'm not really clear on what it is. But we reviewed it every angle that could possibly be reviewed. And anything he, we can dispute every single thing, every allegation, everything he says, we can clearly <coughs> dispute. So yeah. that's not an issue. Over his years of investigating, Vincent has poked plenty of holes in the police narrative, many of them raising valid questions. He has an alibi that doesn't hold up, timelines that don't make sense, people with motives who were given little or no attention in the investigation. What Vincent's never done, though, is present solid evidence supporting some other version of events. For what it's worth, Vincent believes that evidence exists, but that it's being withheld from him. And they keep going back to, I don't have any physical evidence, but my argument is, well, if you let me see the crime scene photos, I guarantee you, I can show you how this doesn't match up. They won't give up those crime scene photos. Like, what are you hiding? Like, I can get Michael Jackson's crime scene photos. And Michael Jackson was 30 times bigger than Steve McNair. I can get his crime scene photos. I've seen his naked body, as gross as it is, on the bed. But I can't see Steve's? Come on. What are you hiding? I, too, requested to see those crime scene photos, and the Nashville police declined. Those pictures have not been released, the police said, quote, out of deference and respect to the McNair children and Miss McNair. By Miss McNair here, Vincent assumes they mean Michelle, Steve's widow. Remember, Lucille McNair, Steve's mother, wanted to see those photos. She apparently asked for copies when she traveled to Nashville with Dr. Alvin Simpson and a few friends back in June 2011. Doc says that during that visit, they were told that Michelle had requested that the police not publicly disclose the crime scene photos. I reached out to Lee Pope, who works as an open records counsel in the Tennessee Comptroller's office. It's essentially his job to explain the state's public record laws. He told me that this situation was covered by the state's Postmortem Examination Act, which makes it a criminal offense for anyone to release images of a deceased person without the consent of the next of kin. In other words, if Michelle wanted a block to release the crime scene photos, she could. But Lee also said that any photos that didn't include a deceased person, in this case, any pictures that didn't show Steve or Jenny's body, should be available upon request under the Tennessee Public Records Act. I sent the Nashville PD an official request for those photos, and I never got a response. In essence, I'd hit the same wall Vincent Hill had, he believed that all of his questions would be answered if he could just get his hands on those photos. You can imagine how Vincent felt then when the grand jury declined to reopen the Steve McNair case. He still remembers calling Lucille McNair to tell her the news. I was standing at uh, Comdata by elevator, and uh, I called Lucille, and I mean, I was bawling, <laughs> bawling, crying. I told her I failed her, and she said, well, you didn't fail because you're the only person fighting for Steve. But I, I felt like such a failure. Vincent may have felt like a failure, but imagine how Lucille felt. She had questions about her son's death from the beginning. She confronted the police, she hired this private investigator to look into the case, and she wasn't any closer, it seems, to getting the answers she needed. I needed to see how Lucille felt about all of this. And so, in the fall of 2017, when Doc Simpson and I took our first trip down to Mississippi, Doc brought me over to Lucille's new house, across the street from the ranch. When Lucille greeted us, she was wearing a t-shirt covered in pictures of her late son, with the words, in loving memory of Steve McNair, stretch across the front. She cooked us pork chops with tomato gravy for lunch, 
Doc's favorite. But we didn't talk at all about Steve McNair. We sat in her kitchen and watched Dr. Phil. And we talked politics. Roy Moore, President Trump, gun control. Doc felt it would be best if Lucille and I got to know one another before we dove into all the details of her son's murder and the mystery surrounding it. As we made small talk, I found Lucille to be polite and friendly. When she sent us on her way, it seemed there would be an outside chance she might participate in this podcast. A few months later, though, Doc called me to break the news. Lucille was out. From what Doc has told me, Lucille is done with it all. She stopped speaking out about her son's murder case. And she's doing that in large part because she doesn't want to anger Michelle, Steve's widow, who would prefer that this just all went away. The way Doc Simpson describes it, Lucille and Michelle have reconciled after the whole fiasco with the house at the ranch. Within the past few years, Lucille apparently came to the conclusion that she would have to maintain a cordial relationship with her daughter-in-law if she wanted to stay close to Michelle and Steve's two boys, her two grandchildren. And as Lucille has grown closer to Michelle, Vincent has felt her pull away. So when did Lucille, because it seems like Lucille hasn't lost interest, but in recent years, it seems like she hasn't asked as many questions as she was at the beginning. Or what? when did you start seeing that? Uh, maybe in the last couple of years, especially this last year. Yeah, I know she wants to rebuild the relationship with Michelle and, and uh, the grandsons, which which I, I totally understand, right? So I think there's a piece of that where she feels, well, if she asks questions, then Michelle may feel some type of way about it, which I totally get. I, I cannot fault Lucille for that at all. And I would never say, oh, I understand how she feels because I don't. I didn't lose my son in a tragic way the way she did. But I think there's still a piece of her that really wants to know what really happened to Steve. In the end, Lucille's decline to talk was completely understandable. Let the poor woman grieve. Besides, she doesn't have the answers. It was more frustrating to get no comments from people actually involved in the case. There was Robert Gaddy, Steve's friend and bodyguard, the one who allegedly had some friction with Steve about money in the end. He declined to talk. Or what about Wayne Neely? He shared a condo with Steve and he was the first one who found the bodies. He never returned my messages. As far as I can tell, he's never said anything publicly about this case, ever. And Doc Simpson finds all of this strange. If all these people cared about Steve, he figures, if they cared about finding out what really happened to him, they should be willing to talk, unless they have something to hide. When you are innocent of anything, you'll make yourself available to share information. And because this is so guarded, it's just drawing more red flags to everything. If somebody accuses me of a murder, I don't need an attorney to speak for me. I'm going to speak for myself. I can be very convincing in as much as I know that I am not responsible for what happened. And because all these people are circumventing a simple interview, there's something wrong with that. This is all just speculation on Doc's part. Nobody is required to talk to a reporter about the sordid details of a deceased friend's life. But in a case with as many loose ends as this one, it's easy to start imagining nefarious motives everywhere you look. I think a lot of them have a fear because some individuals have said to me, Doc, you need to watch your back. You might come up stinking on the side of the road. You need to leave it alone. And I said, well, I'm not going to leave it alone. Uh, and Vincent has been told the same thing. You know, you might want to just leave that alone. There, there are some bigger fish out there, you know, who can do this and this and this. Uh, Raymond even told me that he's been approached by people and, and he has a high level of fear. So that might suggest why some individuals are not speaking out is that they might have gotten some hush money or there might be something that these individuals don't want exposed. It's something that really needs to be investigated because who would have a problem 
telling the truth. Just tell what you know. If you if you weren't involved, you just weren't involved. But I, I'm not excluding anybody. Mm -hmm. You're guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> Where this is concerned. The Raymond he's referring to here is Raymond White, Steve's personal assistant. He was always by Steve's side and knew the inner workings of McNair's personal and professional lives. At one point, Doc arranged a three-way phone call between himself, Raymond, and me. I explained to Raymond what I was doing and why I wanted him to be involved in the podcast. He was the connective tissue between so many facets of Steve's life. Raymond said he'd think about it. But then, a few weeks later, Doc came back to me saying Raymond would only talk if he were paid for it. It wasn't just the money, though. Raymond apparently had another reason not to talk to me. According to Doc Simpson, shortly after Steve died in July 2009, Michelle McNair tried to convince Raymond to sign a confidentiality agreement. That document, I'm told, stated that if Raymond were ever to speak to the media about Steve McNair without prior written consent, he would have to pay the family $500,000. The way Doc tells it, though, Raymond never signed that document. He grabbed it and left the room. Vincent Hill ended up with a copy, and he shared it with me. We ran it by a lawyer, and the document looked legitimate enough. It included all the language you'd expect to see in a common NDA. I also spoke to Edwin Smith, Raymond White's half-brother, and Edwin told me, it's true. Michelle tried to have Raymond sign an NDA. He says Raymond shared that story himself. What was Raymond's reaction to that? He was offended. Why would I get out there and say anything about him when he was a friend, possibly in your outside, a family member and my employer? You know, I know Raymond is very big on loyalty. So I don't think he would ever say anything in a spirit to say anything negative or hurtful towards Steve or his family. Why do you think Michelle wanted Raymond to sign that document? Like, does, did Raymond ever talk about that? Well, um, I think it was, a, it was a lot more. She wanted some answers that Raymond would not answer. And maybe she didn't want to be put in a negative light. Because again, negative light was some things that may have been said to Raymond as far as what Steve may have communicated to him. Yeah, because Raymond was maybe closer to Steve than anyone. Correct. And, you know, it's, Raymond's not going to talk about Steve, as far as I know. The day after I spoke with Edwin Smith, I got a panicked phone call from Doc Simpson. He'd just spoken to Raymond. Word apparently gotten to Raymond that I had talked to his half-brother, and now he was kind of freaking out. Well, Raymond is concerned that his life is in danger I want to think, if I understood him correctly, there were some questions asked of his brothers, and I told him that I put you in contact with both of his brothers and explained the purpose of the interview with them. So I'm not sure exactly what precipitated all of this, but he mentioned that never been any validation in terms of who you are and asked me that I have a business card with information regarding who you actually work for and that you were freelance and selling stories to Fourth Illustrated and others and that some state police person or somebody he talked to made contact with Sports Illustrated and said that you were not employed there and he feels as though his life is in danger by things that are being disclosed with relationship to murder and that I too might be in danger because if people are hearing what is being said, there are some people who might be disturbed by information that, that would be otherwise not made known to the public. This was a new one for me. Doc said Raymond was afraid that his life was in danger, 
and he suspected that I was not, in fact, a reporter for Sports Illustrated. Doc had seen Raymond behave like this before, and he believed a lot of Raymond's skittishness could be traced back to that confidentiality agreement that Michelle had allegedly asked him to sign all those years back. He said to me when he was here, he said, Doc, if I come up dead, go to the appropriate officials and let them know that Michelle had something to do with my death. said that I'm, I'm being followed. And in the beginning, I um, internalized it to be some type of paranoia and didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. But it became a reoccurring theme with him. And that was a, a second time that he came to Atlanta and called me and asked me to meet him at the airport. I was headed to church that morning. But went by the airport, picked him up, and he said, there's somebody following us. So I said, Raymond, why would you have me pick you up if you were in danger to put me in harm's way? And that's when he showed me his guns. He was dressed in fatigue wear, and he had me to drop him off in the woods. It was a wooded area leading to where I was going. And he got out, and I didn't hear from him again until maybe a month or two later. And I never got the complete story behind all of that. But he changes his phone number almost every 30 days to avoid people being able to keep up with him. And he stays in, in, in any one place. Each time he comes to Atlanta, he'll have a different number for whatever reason so that no one will be able to track where he's going. And I, I don't completely understand it, but it is what it is. And, you know, I respect him for what he's feeling in terms of his paranoia or emotions about what's going on, because there are some things that I don't know of that might be guiding forces to his behavior. And so you just picked him up at the airport and uh, he, sh- he showed you that he had a gun. And That was that was 2015. I never asked him any more about that. But each time that I talked to Raymond and the issue of Steve's murder comes up, he's always expressing fear, fear of what can happen to him and fear of what could happen to me. But I I said to him, I said, Raymond, I'm just not going to be quiet is the issue. I feel compelled to be his friend still in death. I won't speculate about why Michelle may have tried to get Raymond to sign an NDA or why Raymond feels so paranoid about Michelle. I've seen absolutely no evidence that connects Michelle with Steve's death. And her desire for silence might just be that she'd rather avoid drawing attention to the fact that she was a jilted wife. But I think it's fascinating that this paranoia exists at all, that it's out there. It speaks to something widespread, really. I interviewed so many people who felt like there was something deeper going on with this case, like there was some larger conspiracy. I heard speculation from one source that Steve may have been involved in an underground casino in Nashville, and that it had something to do with his death. I heard that somebody may have knocked him off in lieu of paying back a large loan that McNair had given out. I heard Steve had slept around with the wife of someone, someone we talked about in this podcast, and that that person maybe ordered a hit on Steve. I heard so many more of these things, and they're all unsubstantiated rumors. But the paranoia? That's a real thing people are still dealing with. I get the feeling that if Raymond were to spill the beans about everything that he knows, he probably would need to be in a witness protection program or something. And that's why he said emphatically, if he's not fairly compensated, he's not talking at all. Follow the Titan is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. 
They strive to make the financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. The app is simple and intuitive. It's got a clear design and data is presented in an easy to digest way. I recently downloaded the Robinhood app and I found that it's incredibly easy to navigate. Robinhood provides charts and market data that make it easy for me to make an informed decision. And then I can place a trade in just four taps on my phone. The best part is Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, not Robinhood. You can trade stocks and keep all the profits for yourself. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at titan.robinhood.com. That's titan.robinhood.com. Raymond White may have declined to talk to me, but Doc Simpson continued to help me track down new leads. At one point, we took a second trip to Mississippi to talk to some more of Steve's family and friends. On that trip, Doc connected me with Stephen McNair, Steve's second oldest son, the one he had with Sheila. Everyone calls him Little Stephen. He's not so little anymore, though. He recently graduated from Tennessee State University in Nashville, and now he's enrolled as a graduate student in the speech-language pathology program at North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. Little Stephen told me he'd watched one of the crime shows about his father's murder, one of the Vincent Hill shows, and he said the same thing that so many other people had told me. He didn't think that Jenny had killed his father. I honestly feel like it was, me personally, I really feel like it was a setup. After I've, you know, kind of gotten older and as stories have gotten out, different stories and, you know, different segments on television, and it's like, you know, why? Like, you know, why, what? What questions do you have about the case or what, what, why do you think it was set up? My first question, obviously, would be why, you know. Um, what could he have done to cause her to result to something as such. But now, as like as I think about it now, I kind of look at it differently. Like as if, honestly, did she even have anything to do with it? Was it her? You know, it could have been so many people that had access to my dad's, you know, condo, a- access to his life, basically. So um, it just doesn't click to me that she would do such a thing like that, especially, you know, after seeing basically what how him his and her life was going it's like why 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 on earth would you even attempt to do something like that especially if you know he's showing his emotions and 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 want to you so i don't know like and then a lot of it came into play about you know him and michelle potentially not being together and is it was just kind of like a lot of what if, what if, oh, this is, it was like so much going on at that time. But like, like I said, my dad never showed any like weakness. He showed, he never showed like his, his problems through any emotions that he had. So of course we didn't know what was going on. Of course he didn't want to include his kids and nothing like that. So it was only so much that, you know, I kind of analyzed, I kind of knew, but you know, did she have something to do with it? And by she, I mean, Michelle, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's all it's like it's, it's so much that I do want to say but it's like it's not really my place because like I said like my dad's relationship with with those people they were they they really had nothing to do with me I asked little Steven if he could sit down with Michelle what would you ask where were you during that time questions as far as how do you really feel about the situation obviously did you have anything to do with the situation what what was the problem? when it came to 
reaching out to us because you never reached out to us. You never reached out to see how we were doing. You never reached out to check on us or any of that. It's like we always had to reach out to you at the end of the day. Just like questions just regarding her, if 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 she even like if she had anything to do with the whole situation. Like what was I feel like I I feel like I have every right to ask how the relationship was going between them. Like were y'all on the verge of divorcing? Did that have anything to do with his death? Like, did you even know her? Like, did I mean, I feel like once I like actually got in front of her, then the questions would really just start flowing. And it's like, if you're not able to give me a definite answer, if you're taking too long with the answers, if you're stumbling with the answers, then something's not right. You should be able to tell me out of all people, I'm his son, I deserve to know. I tried talking to Michelle McNair. I sent her messages and they all went unreturned. I reached out to her lawyer, and he told me, understandably, that Steve's widow wanted nothing to do with this podcast. I moved on. Vincent Hill once tried to interview Michelle, too, and his attempt was a bit messier. This was August of 2016. Vincent was taping one of his shows with Crime Watch Daily, a syndicated series that lasted three seasons. And, as Vincent tells it, someone involved in the production suggested that they all show up at Michelle's house, unannounced, to see if she'd speak. Vincent says he was against the idea. Crime Watch Daily is one of those shows where, you know, they like to catch the person coming out of the house or whatever. You know, they wanted to go and do this knock and talk with Michelle. And, yeah, I wasn't a big fan of it, you know, because I have to protect my relationship with Lucille. And, you know, I knew Lucille would probably feel some type of way about it because her grandsons are there, which, duh, rightfully so. And I was so against it. Like, guys, I don't know if we should do this. Like, Whatever Vincent's protests were, a group eventually went over to Michelle's house. There was a female reporter, a cameraman, and Vincent. They knocked, and Trenton McNair, Stephen Michelle's younger son, who was about 12 years old at the time, opened the front door. Three of his friends were there with him, too. Trenton yelled for his mother, who rushed to her son's side. Standing in the doorway, the reporter began pelting Michelle with questions about her husband's death. She went so far to suggest that Michelle was hiding something. She said Vincent knew the truth about what had happened to Steve, whatever that meant. Michelle demanded that the crew stop filming and that they leave her property immediately. Finally, Trenton slammed the door and ran off to his bedroom crying. Yeah, I was kind of like standing back behind the cameraman and behind the reporter, and I'm just kind of like, really don't want to be here, right? And then as soon as Michelle like came to the foyer and saw me, she just flipped out, which I'm like, yeah, I told you that was going to be the reaction. You know, what makes it so bad is they were having a sleepover that night, so there were just kids just in the corridor just like peeking their heads around the corner, like, what's going on? What's going on? So it was just this big cluster of, of mess, you know, which, which I'm sure infuriated Michelle even more. A month later, Michelle filed a lawsuit against Vincent, the reporter, the cameraman, and Crime Watch Daily. She claimed that she and her family were subjected to, quote, painful, untrue, and unwarranted verbal assaults, and that the entire incident was highly traumatic for the McNairs, especially young Trenton. Eventually, all the parties agreed to dismiss the lawsuit. It's unclear whether Michelle reached some sort of agreement with the TV show. When Crime Watch Daily aired its episode on the Steve McNair case, the show made no mention of the run-in at Michelle's house. Looking back, Vincent says he's embarrassed about the whole incident. You show up to the door with cameras and like, hey, we want to ask you questions, right? I can definitely understand uh, Michelle's frustration with that. If I could, I would actually apologize to Michelle. I don't know if she would <laughs> take that apology, but... You know, I definitely would apologize simply because 
if I was in her shoes, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. Even if it wasn't Vincent's idea, the incident at Michelle's house reeked of desperation. It gave me the impression that, before I'd even started looking into this case, Vincent's whole investigation had started losing steam. Lucille McNair seemed to have pulled back her involvement. Amanda, Jenny's sister, had stopped talking to him regularly, too. Sure, Vincent would tell me all the time about some new tip he'd just gotten, but really, it didn't seem like he had a ton of new intel. When he popped up in our podcast a few months ago, in mid-October, he says several people reached out to him, claiming they had new information about the case, and he referred a few of those people to me. I spoke to one guy who said he was friends with a Vanderbilt player Jenny had apparently dated. For what it's worth, he told me Jenny was still seeing that guy just a few weeks before she died, which reinforced the idea that she wasn't all that broken up about Steve sleeping around. I spoke to another person who told me I should look into Doug Crow, a natural restaurateur who owned a bar that this person allegedly worked at in 2009. McNair was close with Crow toward the end of his life, and the two men were together on the night of July 3rd into the early hours of July 4th, just before Steve died. The police had interviewed Crow, and nothing had really come of it. He did reveal in that police interview, though, that on the night that he was hanging out with Steve, a girl had approached their table and told McNair that her boyfriend was going to kick his ass because she had said he had put a roof in her drink about a year earlier. That McNair would end up dead the following day? That strikes me as something the police maybe should have looked into, at least. It's unclear whether this lead went anywhere, though. If the Nashville PD followed up on it, there's no mention of it in the police report. And Vincent led me to another man who said he'd spoken to Wayne Neely back in 2009, a few days after Neely found Steve and Jenny's bodies. Neely had apparently brought his car in to be detailed at a place where this guy was employed. And as this guy worked on Neely's car, they got to talking. He says Neely told him the reason he went over to the condo that afternoon, on July 4, 2009, was because Michelle McNair had called and asked him to go find Steve. Remember, Neely told the police that he'd gone over to the condo to talk to Steve about making an appearance at a Little League baseball game which would make this another person who may have misled the police. Now, this could be inconsequential, a mere mistelling of truth under extreme duress, or a bad tip. I wanted to talk to Doc Simpson about this, and these other new leads. Often I found that, given his personal connection to the McNair family, he would have insights that even Vincent Hill wouldn't have. But back in October, on the eve of our launching this podcast, Doc had sent me a text message. He was done participating in this project. He told me he was concerned about how it might affect his relationship with the McNair family. I can't speak for Doc, but if Lucille was trying to make up with Michelle, and if Doc, Lucille's close friend, was talking about Michelle behind her back for a podcast, I can understand why he might have needed out. I don't know what he'll do from here. Doc may be done talking to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's done with this case. At one point, he told me he was in the process of writing his own book. He said he'd already picked out a title, My Life with the McNairs. If Doc's goal is to get some closure for his friend, I don't know if a book is going to help him any. I don't know if this podcast brought him any closure either. You may have noticed, we didn't discover Steve McNair's true killer, but that was never really the point. I've been asked so many times over the last year and a half, who do I think killed Steve McNair? But I'm more interested in the question that should precede that. The question at the heart of this podcast was always, did Jenny Kazani really kill Steve McNair? I feel a little more comfortable tackling that one. We've walked you through the case, pointed out all these holes, some big, some small, some issues raised by Vincent Hill, some by others. And we've shown you how implausible, on so many levels, the police narrative seems. During my reporting, there were times when I felt like, no, she absolutely didn't do it. And then there were times when I felt like, oh shit, maybe she did. But I keep coming back to this. To convict a living person of murder, you need to show proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And this case seems loaded with reasonable doubt. But Jenny's dead. Pinning the murder on her doesn't require much more than what we have here some character questions, potential motive, 
and a few bits of physical evidence that can be used your way. In the end, I do think there's enough doubt here that the entire case ought to be reopened and re-examined, led by a new, impartial investigative team. That's just me, though. Will that happen? It seems doubtful. The only way this case gets reopened, I think, is if some new information is volunteered. If someone is compelled to come forward and help connect the dots we've laid out. If that doesn't happen, then, well, I don't know. As you've heard, there are a number of people who consider this case very much unresolved. They have all these unanswered questions, and the only thing they have to cling to right now is all the speculation, all these rumors that are swirling around. And Vincent Hill continues to stoke that curiosity. I wonder, though, what will happen if Vincent's questions are never answered? What if the rumors and the speculation are never put to bed? At what point will Vincent stop with the Steve McNair books and the Steve McNair TV shows? In the middle of all of our talking, he was even negotiating his participation in a Steve McNair documentary for a major broadcaster. At what point will he let all of this just rest? Yeah, I, I think, you know, at, at some point, family members feel they, they have to move on for, for their own peace of mind, right? So I'm just a guy that can't move on because I just know the whole thing's BS. And yeah, at the end of the day, two families need answers, right? And her name needs to be cleared. You know, because she's accused of killing Steve and then killing herself. So her n- name needs to be cleared. Steve's name needs to be cleared too, right? Because you see on the internet, well, he was cheating. He got what he deserved. He was. First of all, no one deserves that. I don't care what you're doing in life. You know, but there's so much bad stuff being said about Steve that his name needs to be cleared as well. At one point in our conversations, Vincent told me that Steve and Jenny still talk to him sometimes. And he uses that as motivation to keep going keep digging. It's weird. I, I told you I actually have one of her hairs that we got in her property. It's in a Ziploc bag and in my house. I know that sounds weird, but I keep that as a, a reminder. And there was a few things in her purse, like a pack of gum I still have to this day. You know, but I think every, there's probably not a day that goes by where I don't think, or I don't tell them, hey, I'm still working. And like, I may see out of the blue, a black Escalade going by. And it's like, yeah, I'm still working, right? Like, just out of the blue, here comes this black Escalade. It's like, no, nah, I haven't forgot you guys, right? So I think in a way they they know I'm still fighting for them. You know, I know that sounds weird, and most people don't believe in the afterlife and all that stuff, but I think they know I'm still fighting for them, and I always will. I'm actually in the process of my third and final book, and it's actually going to be called Intentional Grounding uh, because that's what Nashville did with this case. They grounded it intentionally. You know, there's going to be a whole lot of stuff in there that no one's ever heard before. And uh, it's just going to open people's minds up even more. Like the last book, Incomplete Pass, a lot of people were like, wow, I had no idea. And just wait till this new one comes out because it's going to be a mind blower. Fall of a Titan was brought to you by Sports Illustrated. Story editing was handled by Adam Durson. Our project manager was Ben Eagle. Zach Helfand and Kelvin Bias handled our research. Art direction was spearheaded by Steven Scalaki. Digital design by George Ruiz. And illustrations by Andrew DeGraff. Rob Birchie and Michael Lambert provided legal consultation. And we'd like to give a special thanks to Peter King, Mark Moravik, Chris Stone, Mark McCluskey, and Ryan Hunt. Stay tuned for more long-form podcasts from Sports Illustrated. I'm Tim Rowan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>